Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Ibrahim, co-founder and CEO of Neotax, a tax automation platform that's raised $13 million in funding. Thanks for chatting with me today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so before we begin talking about what you're building, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, sure. I kind of jumped all over the place. I started a coffee company with some friends. But before that, I started a startup that was a CFO app for small businesses. So it connects to QuickBooks, does a bunch of analytics for small companies. And then I joined into it. And I worked on QuickBooks. I was a product manager there, uh, launched a product called QuickBooks Accountant, which is exactly what it sounds like. And then at Intuit, I remember thinking like one day, just or many days, actually, like all of this just needs to go away. Like, you know, taxes are rules and numbers. You know anything about computers? They're pretty good at both of those things. There are cars driving themselves in the street. Like I'm pretty sure computers could crunch some numbers. So that was the inception of the idea for Neotax. Nice. And before we dive into Neotax, I like to start off with two questions just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. So is there a founder CEO that you're studying the most now? And if so, why? Yeah, it's interesting. I know this is like the the most annoying answer, perhaps, because Elon is kind of in the spotlight. And I think deliberately, you're asking folks not to talk about Elon. But I think it's What's most interesting is a lot of founders start companies and you hope that your company would be super successful and would go public. And then you sort of dread what life would be like as a public company CEO. And I think he's a good demonstration of the fact that you can sort of remain authentically yourself, whether you disagree or agree with who he is authentically. You can't disagree with the fact that he's, you know, continues to be himself authentically, speaks his mind, isn't really fitting himself into the small box of what a public company CEO needs to be. So I think that's, like, I joke a lot at the office, cancel culture is sort of like very live and well. And I always tell people, like, if I would, you know, I never wanted to offend anyone, but like, it would also suck to work with people that you can't joke with. And so, yeah, I think like remaining authentically yourself, having the same values, having people that you can joke with and laugh with, and not letting any of those things go as the company gets more buttoned up, more successful, and, you know, potentially a public company. Totally. Love that. Yeah, I'm not anti-Elon Musk by any means, but as I was you know, interviewing more and more founders, literally everyone was saying Elon Musk, so had to put a stipulation there. But this week, we can make an exception because it's, I think, you know, hard to think of any other CEO besides Elon Musk today. These days, at least, yeah. What are your thoughts on uh, everything that's happening at Twitter? It's interesting. I think there's like a lot of noise and I don't know if it's his desire or not for there to be a lot of noise, but I feel like much ado about nothing, I think, a little bit. But it's interesting. I mean, he's he took over a company. He thinks it's important. Good for him. He's doing a bunch of changes to it. And it's too early to judge, I think. We'll see what happens at the other end. But it's, I guess it's kind of fun to watch. It's like live streaming a company restructuring on Twitter. Yeah. I feel like nothing like this has ever happened before. I'm loving it. It's it's fun to watch. I find myself like refreshing the news every couple of hours, you know, just to see, all right, what's happening today or what's going on. Yeah, and it's surprising that the number of things that he replies to. Like someone will just post something and he'll say, This is false. This is not what we're doing. Stay tuned for more information. And it's kind of interesting to like anyone can say whatever they want and he may or may not respond, right? And sometimes it strikes 
I can't imagine how much time he has to be able to, he must have someone scanning Twitter for him and like prioritizing the ones that are worth responding to or not. Because it seems like an, an otherwise it would be, it would be a full-time job. Yeah, and he has a, a few other full-time jobs, I think, with all of his other companies. So I can't uh, imagine what's happening behind the scenes there. Yeah, yeah. Looks fun, though. Yeah, one thing I thought was interesting is I was watching a podcast a few months ago with Elon, and it was like two hours long. And he said in there that he just views himself as a mega troll. And everything he does, or a lot of what he does, is just trolling the world. And yeah, that he gets a kick from that and and he finds that fun. And as soon as I understood that about Elon Musk, then, you know, a lot of his actions and behavior all of a sudden makes a lot of sense. You know, he is just messing with everyone and trying to get a rise out of people, which is pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. There was this, a friend of mine, we were joking about how Neotax is going to, and I don't want to, you know, get ahead of us, but like Neotax is going to automate taxes for all of American businesses. And then it's going to like optimize, it's going to uncover every tax advantage that exists and, and apply it to every business. And then once we've sort of achieved this nirvana state where every small business is fully optimized, is taking advantage of every tax advantage out there, just like the big companies, we're going to turn this baby into a nonprofit and and sort of like as like a mega troll move. And a friend of mine, we're just hanging out. He's like, I'm going to tell your investors that you said that. And I was like, they might actually believe you. Like I'm like <laughs> too many things are a practical joke that they might actually think that you're being serious. So I appreciate the mega troll theme. <laughs> nice. I love that. And that is a perfect segue to dive a little bit deeper into what you guys are doing there at Neotax. So you just provided a pretty good high level overview, I think, there in your answer to a different question. So let's maybe talk a little bit about the market that you're serving and the types of business that are using the product. Yeah, sure. I think it's interesting. You can sort of go about this in a number of different ways, right? You can you can build tools for accountants. You can build tools to compete with accountants. You yourself can become an accountant and compete with accountants. You can imagine you can go about this a, a number of different ways. At the end of the day, I think we're exploring all the options possible. We'd love to work with whoever would like to work with us. But ultimately, the incentives have to be aligned for businesses to take full advantage, sort of like I said, all the tax advantages out there, but also just to abstract away all the complexity all of the pain of tax filing, all the number crunching and the optimizing and the micro optimizing. We've got this joke internally. It's not really a joke, but we say like, you know, companies will spend millions of dollars lobbying to make the tax code more complex. And Congress will spend months and months sort of legislating to make the tax code more complex. And in our perspective, you know, we don't want to throw stones, but like in some cases it's deliberately obscure, right? Like it's, it's almost like it's intended to be like very vague and obscure, and, and complicated. And yeah, you can spend a few tens of millions of dollars, a few months legislating this stuff to make it more complex. It'll take our software engineers, you know, a few days to abstract away all that complexity. Like, do we forget that it's just rules and computers are really good at rules? And so, you know, folks can lobby, they can make it more complex, less complex. But at the end of the day, we feel that businesses or customers should just be, that should just be abstracted away from them. And automate, optimize, do as much as you can and make it as simple as possible to interface and understand what the hell is going on with taxes and then just do it, just file it, just get it done. No one started a company to have to worry about this stuff. And so, yeah, that's that's our perspective on all the different players in the market. And then obviously the kinds of companies that are gravitating towards our value prop are sort of more modern, savvy, not just tech savvy, finance savvy companies. I like to say that this is for everyone that joins our company to truly automate 
a domain, you need to be able to wrap your head around it entirely, which means you need to master the domain. And so finance savvy companies specifically end up appreciating what we're doing more than anyone else because the degree to which they've wrapped their heads around their domain, they're like, oh, the folks at Neotax, you know, these super nuanced, sophisticated bits of the tax code that they're optimizing against or that they're automating, like they know what they're doing. And so we end up attracting folks that are savvier, both tech savvy and finance savvy, modern companies that that want to be efficient. Got it. That's interesting. And and who's being displaced by the Neotax platform or, or is there nobody being displaced by this? This is my answer to how do you sleep at night, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's funny. When I was at Intuit, I was the core PM on a brand new product, like I said, QuickBooks accountant. We started building it in 14 and we launched it in 2015. And in 14, the average age of accountants in the US was 55. And the following year was 56. And so it, it technically only gone up by 0.8, but you get my point, right? And so there is actually a, a massive labor shortage. The IRS announced a massive budget. They're going to go out and I don't even remember the number, but there's an insane 80,000 tax IRS agents that they wanted to hire or something. And I think they've hired like a thousand. There's some staggering statistic. Don't quote me on this. I should probably have prepared it before we got on the podcast, but they've hired a small fraction and every accounting firm you go, if you, I don't know if you've tried to hire an accountant, but nobody's accepting new clients or very few are accepting new clients. And it's not because they're all good. Many of them are not very good and they're still not accepting new clients because there is a shortage. And so, and that shortage, I think, will continue to expand just based on the statistics around who's entering the workforce, who's studying accounting and finance, who's signing up for the CPA exam, et cetera, et cetera. And so we feel like we're filling a gap in the labor market more so than anything else. And if that trend continues, yeah, I don't think it's insane that it takes, you know, five years to automate a fairly sizable chunk of the work that's being done, and then 10 years to automate another sizable chunk, which frankly permits these folks that people think are being displaced, it permits accountants or CPAs to up-level into offering more valuable sort of strategic services because the minutia of the filing regulatory compliance stuff is getting automated away, is getting automated in an optimized way. And so now they can focus on like, let's do financial planning or strategic planning or like CFO-ish kind of stuff. So it it fills a labor gap and it permits the folks that are in the labor market to up-level and frankly charge more for higher value skill sets. That makes a lot of sense. And I hope, you know, my CPA is not listening in on this one, but you know, he's he's just a guy in San Diego that I've, you know, worked with now for like six or seven years. I would say he's probably like 60, 65 years old. And you know, whenever we're working on taxes, like in the back of my mind, I always do wonder, you know, like, is this guy right? Are the calculations he's doing, you know, is he taking advantage of everything that's out there? Like I do wonder that in my head. And I think that's something that a lot of business owners struggle with as well as, you know, you're, you're trusting a dude here at the end of the day to make, you know, some very complex and very important decisions for you. So that resonates a lot, I think, with the idea of having, you know, machines doing these calculations and relying more on computers to do these than, you know, a dude in San Diego. Right. And I'm sure he's a great dude in San Diego. The, the challenge is there is no way of knowing if he's doing a good job or not. And no, like, if you ask any of your buddies as well, hey, do you have a good CPA you can recommend? No one can speak. There, It's entirely opaque, right? No one can speak to the quality of the work, how optimized or not optimized it is. There's an investor who said, whenever I'm interviewing a CPA, I ask, I ask for like a performance benchmark and how 
and the metric that he used was like, what is my effective tax rate relative to like others in my cohort? And people just look at him with blank stares because that's not at all how that occupation thinks about their job, right? It's not like this metrics-driven quantitative, despite it being very numbers-driven and quantitative, it's simply just not how anyone thinks about their performance or that that even is a performance metric. And it's it's fascinating. So there's no way of knowing. We have a product that's been on the back burner for a while. There's always something that comes up right ahead of it. But hopefully in the next year, we'll have it. It's called the, the Neotax Scorecard, where you can upload a tax return and we'll just tell you how optimized it is. And frankly, nobody knows, right? It's, uh, it's kind of curious. That's interesting. That sounds like the ultimate lead gen as well. Yeah, who wouldn't want to do that and, and find out how optimized their strategy is? Right, right, exactly. Interesting. And you know, just looking at the website right now, for example, I see Pipe, you know, it's a, a familiar company for me. So you saved them, you know, almost 700k. Could you talk through, you know, like how you guys were able to do that or you know any specifics that you're allowed to share regarding that use case or that case study? Well, I'll take like one quick step back. Our goal is, as I've said, like maybe eight times now, to automate and optimize taxes, sort of full stop, like across the board. We started with the R&D tax credit, which is this government incentive to give startups that are building anything whatsoever cash back. And frankly, there's like no machine learning or anything complex that goes into preparing the R&D credit. But it is a great way to start a relationship with customers to get the data that we need to be able to automate the rest of their taxes. That makes sense. And so that's where we started. And then we've been expanding into other areas of tax. And now we're finally in, you know, finally, it's been like two and a half, three years now. We're finally in a place where our product not only does the R&D credit, but also optimizes the holistic tax strategy for a company. And so there is, I don't want to bore everyone here with like some tax changes, but there's a tax change that went into effect January 1st of this year, 2020 folks maybe have or have not heard about it, mainly because no one's filed taxes on 2022 yet, right? So you haven't paid this price quite yet, but you can no longer just subtract or deduct your R&D, which is any engineering product or design. You can't just subtract that from your revenue anymore. It's not like, oh, I made 3 million bucks, but I spent 10 million. 3 minus 10 equals negative 7. You can't quite do that anymore. You need to take that R&D and spread it out over five years. So you take whatever you spent on R&D and you only get to deduct a fifth of it. It's actually a tenth for some technicality, but you only get to deduct a tenth of it in that first year. And so a bunch of companies that actually aren't profitable will have a tax bill. This makes no sense. Everyone's outraged. Yes, I know. Congress even tried to repeal this, but for better or for worse, both sides of the aisle can't seem to cooperate on anything. And so this thing kind of just slipped by and went into effect despite everyone being against it. Nonetheless, I say this because now all of a sudden, it's not just the R&D credit, which is capped at $250,000 that startups can get that we can save a company. There's also savings beyond that into the income tax. Again, companies that are not profitable, but because of some tax change gymnastics, all of a sudden have a tax bill. And so we can do sort of, like I said, holistic tax strategy and optimization for these companies and reduce the tax bill that they have, as well as giving them an R&D credit as well. Those are, to be honest, very favorable cases where we can like not just shrink or reduce your income tax bill, but also give you money. That's kind of, I'd say maybe like only the top 15, 20% of our customers were able to do that for them. But in many cases, we're able to save hundreds of thousands of dollars because like I said, computers are really good at crunching numbers and optimizing this stuff. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. 
So what's that process look like then, you know, for a company to get to that stage with you where you can make those recommendations outside of the R&D credits? What does that process look like? It's actually pretty simple. We've gotten feedback that we oversimplify it. There's a ton of stuff going on under the hood. But again, our mission is to abstract away as much of the complexity as possible. And so you connect your whatever, QuickBooks, NetSuite, whatever you're using for your accounting, zero. You connect your payroll, you know, again, Gusto, Rippling, whatever it is that you're using, JustWorks. Mm-hmm. And you add a few things. You tell us what your net operating losses are, answer a few pretty basic questions. And then we're able to tell you out of the universe of all the possible tax outcomes for your business, this is the one that's most optimal. And we can actually apply it across your books and financials and can spit out financial statements that are in accordance with this highly optimized tax strategy. And as a result, there's you know lots of dollar savings for those companies. Now, there are so many levers under the hood that we're manipulating is the wrong word, but that we're adjusting and balancing and making sure everything works harmoniously together feng shui I think is the right term here, the technical term. So there are so many pieces under the hood. And you can obviously go in and play with them individually. And you sort of have, we have power users that can adjust every single one of them. And this goes up to, so I'd say this starts impacting companies if you've got like a few million in revenue, Mm -hmm. up until, frankly, a few hundred million in revenue. And we found, like I said earlier, not just the tech-savviest companies, but the larger the company, it's an interesting scale, right? Like typically that's the harder company to close because it's a bigger contract and you're working on, you know, can you meet their needs or not? But the bigger the company is, the more sophisticated the financial profile of the company, the more sophisticated their head of finance or CFO is, who's usually our user or our buyer. And the more they appreciate the number of things that we're taking into account to produce this optimized outcome for them. And so as the company's gotten bigger, the appreciation or sort of, you know, NPS is going up, which is fascinating. It also, I mean, this kind of makes sense, right? It means that we're taking, we're optimizing against way more levers. There are more degrees of freedom. It would take a a huge team of tax accountants perhaps to do this. But like we said, computers are very good at crunching numbers. But yeah, so that's kind of the profile, mainly technology companies growing pretty fast, startups-ish, right? Into mid-market, people call enterprise different things. But, you know, I'd say we're up until like one to 300 million in revenue, surprisingly. Wow. And in this process, do you ever encounter, let's say, you know, older accounting folks who are just very resistant to this idea or maybe don't trust that technology can do this? Have you encountered that yet or do you ever encounter that? Yeah, all the time. And it's totally fine. We're fortunate that we've taken accuracy and compliance to like a ridiculous degree. Our perspective is this is not happening right now at all, but like this is aspirationally, this is my dream, mm-hmm. is that we have some partnership with the IRS. That we're like, hey, IRS, everybody hates having to interact. It's very complicated. Why don't we just do some partnership and make it super easier for people to file and calculate and optimize all these things? And you can imagine at that moment, the IRS is doing diligence on us and we've got to have a squeaky clean compliance track record to even have a conversation with them. But we're building towards that. We're not talking to them at all right now. But like in our head, there's a conversation in two, three years, and we would be really pissed off if that fell through because we didn't take compliance seriously. So all that is to say, our reporting, our documentation is like beyond robust. It's more comprehensive than what a human could conceivably pull together. And so 
we don't spend a ton of time trying to win over customers that just aren't keen to adopt new or modern products. But you know, the, the proof is in the pudding, as they say. And so when we show folks our documentation and how robust and accurate and compliant everything is, and like I said, how it's far more comprehensive than what a human could conceivably pull together, we end up winning over more folks than you just like the product speaks for or the output, I should say, the quality of the output is sometimes, I don't want to, you know, exaggerate, it's sometimes good enough to even win over the most difficult hearts and minds. That makes sense. And are you typically selling then directly to the company or are you sometimes selling to accountants who will have, you know, 10, 20 or 30 of their own clients and then they'll offer this to everyone they work with? Yeah, it's usually directly to the business. To be honest, I mean, and I mean this with all due respect to all functions, professions and companies, you can kind of imagine that there are far more savvy companies than there are savvy accounting firms for a number of reasons, some of them demographic. But there are some, you know, and, and again, the savvier the firm, the more likely they are to use our software, or at least to partner with us or integrate with us. But we have, there's a minority of very reputable, sophisticated accounting firms that use our software. But the vast majority of our customer base is, like I said, finance teams at startups. Got it. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Something else I wanted to ask about and you know, I could have the the dates wrong here, but I would guess maybe like three or four years ago, it seems like the venture capital world discovered these R&D credits and started funding companies to help companies take advantage of it. Because I've just been chased around the internet with, you know, ads from other companies or other tech companies saying, you know, hey, you may be owed this amount, you can save this amount, blah, blah, blah. So how do you view the competitive landscape? Because, you know, from my perspective as you know a technology entrepreneur this seems like a very crowded space is that accurate to say yeah very accurate like i said there isn't a whole lot of you and i tomorrow can set up an r&d credit shop we don't have to be cpas the bar is quite and so for us that's never been the core business like i said it's a wedge for us to get into broader tax automation and now as we expand into that i think we're sort of hitting our stride as a company i don't know i think entrepreneurs always expect markets to move much faster than they actually do my supposition a few years ago was that this would get commoditized Mm -hmm. and it has not to give you an example we were like hey prices are going to go to zero everyone charges 20 percent of the r&d credit is the the sort of standard pricing Mm -hmm. we were like hey it's going to go to zero we might as well be the pioneers yolo and what ends up happening even if you go to 10 percent or five percent which we did both of folks are like "Ah, i don't know this doesn't this isn't tax is something I, I, I want to take seriously. And I don't want to just go with the cheapest option. And you guys, it signals low quality, even though we were by far, we took compliance and accuracy and robustness to like a annoying, annoyingly greater degree than anyone else. And so we just ended up now we price just like everyone else, but you know, for a substantially greater quality of service. But yeah, I hear you. It's very crowded and has to do it. Uh, or you should at least, it's it's unwise not to. I thought it would get commoditized over a one to three year horizon. It sounds like it may happen over a 10 to 20 year horizon. But yeah, your your observation is astute. Nice. Always good to know that I'm paying attention to all of the ads that are bombarding me every day. Right, exactly. And you know, what does the pricing model look like then outside of the R&D credits? Does that move to like a, a monthly fee or an annual fee? Or is it always a percentage of what's saved? Yeah, great question. There are too many moving parts for us to fixate on just the credit now to optimize your holistic tax situation, right? And so we've moved to just an annual fee. Customers do, however, appreciate some 
performance type of fee. And so while it's not usage or consumption based, it is still like a, it's a tiered SaaS fee. And the tiers aren't based on number of seats. They're not based on the, the amount of expenses. They're not, the tiers are based off of like buckets of savings. So it's like, hey, if we save you from half a million to a million bucks, we'll charge you X. Anything above a million dollars, we'll charge you Y. But it's kind of like flat fee or tiered flat fee, if that makes sense. Got it. That makes sense. All right. Last couple of questions for you. As I'm sure you've experienced so far, bringing an idea to market isn't easy. What's been the biggest challenge that you've faced so far and how'd you overcome it? Yeah, that's, I guess, as the name of your podcast suggests, it's interesting because as we now get into tax optimization, it is a little different. I'm sorry, it's very different from how folks typically do things now. And we've had customers ask, and I suspect this is likely the case for many of either listeners or other podcast guests that you've had that are attempting to create categories or define categories, is it people will ask, what does this replace? Like, who will I fire? Or what software will I stop using so that I can use your software instead? And if you're presenting a, a totally different paradigm, it is not a one-to-one in that same way. And it's difficult to get the customer to understand a whole new way of doing things. And we had a board meeting, perhaps this is sharing too much, we had a board meeting a little while ago, and I had like a you know a slide of the roadmap and all the different pieces. We think there are like five really core components that like if we have a really good grasp on them, we can optimize your taxes really, really well. And so there's these five modules side by side and they're wrapped in like an optimization layer wrapper kind of thing. And this one investor stands up, waves his hands around and goes, hey, it's not obvious to anyone outside of this room why these five, six things should live side by side. Like, what is this odd arrangement of things here? And my half joke was, yeah, poor product marketing of today is category creation tomorrow. Like, we just, we failed to articulate exactly, or we're we're trying to get better at it, right? But like, it doesn't map one-to-one and we're attempting to communicate a new way of doing things. And tomorrow, if we're successful, in the small likelihood that we're successful, folks will look back and say, ah, that was category creation. But that's hindsight bias. As of now, it kind of just looks like poor product marketing. (laughs) I love that. And is there a name for this? Are you calling this category something? Is it a tax optimization platform? Or how do you identify as a company? Your guess is as good as mine, amigo. I'm just kidding. Yeah, tax optimization (laughs) platform is kind of what we're saying now. I've coined the term, if you combine automated and optimized, it's optimized, which is the stupidest thing in the world. But it's, I think that's, I think that's what you want, right? What you want is just like something that's like always on, taking into account all the things that are happening, optimizing everything, automating it so they abstract away the complexity. And and frankly, it extends beyond just tax. Uh, tax is a good reason and a good excuse to, to throw everything together because you need to. But then, you know, it can help you with profitability. It can help you with revenue. Optimizing, I think, finance, making finance strategic, like actually strategic, right? Not just like as a name for a lot of these companies. So yeah, it's obviously a work in progress. But until then, tax optimization platform, I think works fine. Nice. And does that align with you know, a category that I see a couple of companies trying to push is strategic finance? Have you followed that term or that buzzword at all? Yeah, that's why I kind of there was like a joke there of like making finance actually strategic. And yeah. I think that buzzword gets used in places where I think as a finance org, and I'm exaggerating, dramatizing and oversimplifying here. But the best you can do is minimize downside. And we want to 
flip that and turn it into a way where you can actually maximize upside for the company. Mm-hmm. And so how can finance actually contribute to not just saving money, getting money? Tax can be a lever to do that, but there are a number of things beyond tax as well that if you fold in and optimize, you can actually turn finance into something that's driving top line, bringing money into the organization, helping you. When people say like insights or what does that actually mean? Like do people actually make decisions based off of? You can actually drive some really interesting decisions based off of it. It's obviously, like I said, a work in progress. You can't do all these things day one, but as more and more pieces of the puzzle start to come together and the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, you can, yeah, you can genuinely turn finance into a strategic lever for the company. Nice. I love it. Last question for you. If we zoom out into the future, what would you say is the five-year vision for the company? Yeah, no one interacts with our product. It's kind of just sits there tucked away. It's like a Dropbox icon at the top of your Mac. Anytime you pay an invoice or do anything, it just kind of glows to let you know, like, yo, Brett, I saw that. It's being taken into the internal calculus and, and optimized. And then you get a text message that says like, hey, your taxes were done or your quarterly filing, annual filing, whatever it is. And it's just as invisible as possible. Anytime you want to go in and jump in, you can, but it just goes away. Fast forward 10 years, your grandkids, I know there's a time machine here. Your grandkids are sitting on your lap and you're like, I know this is crazy grandkids, but did you know back in the day, humans used to do this. They used to sit there with calculators and they used to punch numbers and your grandkids won't even believe you. They'll think you're making up fiction. <laughs> well, Tom, I had a dude in San Diego that used to do all this stuff for me. Right, exactly. <laughs> you need to take a picture with him so that they that they believe you in the future. <laughs> nice. I love it. All right, man. Unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for this interview, but definitely hope to have you back. This has been a lot of fun. Before we wrap up here, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, you can go to neo.tax. Should I plug my own Twitter here? I have I have like 322 followers or something. If I can get to 340, that would be great. I'm just kidding. I'm at A Ibrahim A. If you want to follow along, I, I tweet about obviously this tax stuff quite a bit. Amazing. Well, thanks again for joining and look forward to seeing you execute on this vision. Cheers. Appreciate it. Likewise. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care.